Welcome to the Progression of Health Podcast. This is episode number 50. I'm here with Michael Ray. Michael, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I uh, just first wanted to say thanks for having me on, Ross. I, I appreciate the time and, and meeting you and getting to chat with you. Um, introduction is always weird to me, but in a nutshell, um, I'm a clinician. So I've traditionally trained as a chiropractor, graduated in 2015. And I also have a, a master's of science in exercise science with a concentration in motor control and rehab. And um, I am an academic. I teach at a local college for their health and human sciences department. So I'm a tenured track assistant professor. And then I also conduct uh, research. So I'm a pain researcher. And you also lift as well, which is really important, I think, to have the experience. Yeah. yeah. I attempt to lift. <laughs> hey, that's that's all we can do, right? That's, you know, the best yeah. we can hope for. Um, so straight off the bat, I'm thinking of a chiropractor. And in Ireland, we just have a physical therapist. It's it's quite limited, right? We just have a personal trainer. We have a physical therapist, which we call a physio. And then we have a GP, right? And a chiropractor, it's kind of like an, an unknown sort of area of health in Ireland. So tell me a little bit about a chiropractor. When would someone go to a chiropractor? Are they considered, you know, like the the uh, the first level of treatment, the first line of treatment, like the gold standard or like, yeah, what... Assume I know nothing. Assume this is the first time I've heard of a chiropractor because some of my listeners in Ireland won't have heard of that. Yeah, no worries. Um, it's an interesting discussion and it's kind of complex and hence that, you know, off recording one of the questions you said you're going to write down about the number of titles in healthcare. But ultimately in the United States, a chiropractor is someone who went to a doctoral program. They graduated with a doctorate of chiropractic. There are four, four national boards you must take and then a fifth physiotherapy board you can elect to take, which I did. Um, and then you're, you have national, uh, accreditation for being a chiropractor. And then you have to go through state licensure as well. So I'm licensed in the state of Virginia. Um, and so the, we are traditionally viewed as a musculoskeletal based clinician, albeit I'm positive there are people who would claim that we're more of a health, a health based and wellness based clinician. Our scope of practice which means like what is within our ability to consult on, diagnose, work up, and treat is quite broad. And in my opinion, unnecessarily broad because it gives people freedom to kind of work in some gray areas like nutritional consulting, supplements consulting, uh, doing blood work and making recommendations based on like it gets into some very sticky areas that I personally don't go into. Uh, so I've traditionally practiced as in within the musculoskeletal realm. But you do have direct access. You also, by the federal standards of Medicare, Medicaid, have physician level status. So that gives you a lot of affordances. For example, a chiropractor can order imaging, x-ray, MRI, anything that they really need to do, ultrasound. Um, the chiropractor can order blood work and urine analysis. So it is um, an un- unnecessarily broad scope, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, you could consult. Most people are going to consult, I would say, for low back pain and neck pain, stuff like that. Is And they could be a primary point of contact. The consultation would involve, you know, a pretty standard diagnostic workup, going through a subjective history, an objective exam, and then making, you know, recommendations from there, either management related or follow up investigations. 
it's very similar to a general physician, but without the ability to prescribe medication. Um, and I would also just add to that uh, for my medical friends uh, that we are drastically undereducated in comparison to a general physician. Yeah, it kind of sounds similar to a personal trainer in a way without with a lot less of the qualifications because, you know, there's so many types of different personal trainers and how they they operate. Um, and then just with the, the the manipulations that you see, you know, like mm-hmm. the body manipulations and stuff, Do does every chiropractor do that? Is that just like some specialize in it, some don't do it? How does that work? Yeah, so I usually say um, we are ultimately a healthcare professional, right? And so we have a particular title that affords us particular licensure that affords us a scope of practice and treatment abilities. So within that scope of practice, we have a wide array of treatments at our disposal, but that excludes a few key aspects. We are non-pharmacological management strategies, meaning we don't do medication prescriptions, we don't do injections, um, we don't do surgery, stuff like that. So within that availability of what we often call conservative management, we do things like spinal manipulative therapy, which is what you're referencing. You could do dry needling or acupuncture, you could do massage, you could do kinesiology tape, you could do cupping. A wide array of things are available that I don't do. Got it. So it's not everyone that's going to be doing those. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I got it done before and I was just kind of like, this is interesting. I wasn't sure what to make of it. So, um, oh, well, what, well now I'm curious. What yeah, was your experience? So, yeah. So <clears throat> I went to a, a chiropractor because he was at the gym I was working at and it was like, you know, free. Of course, I'm going to try it out. I'm intrigued. You know, apparently it offers a benefit. And I was kind of talking about, I went there with some kind of sort of niggles or like mild kind of, you know, restrictions, pain that I had, nothing that would have prompted me to actually pay for someone to help me out. So I was kind of just getting the treatment just because I could. And yeah, it was, it was kind of, it was a sort of a bizarre experience because it was like, you know, professional, like really like, you know, I would say I enjoyed it, but it was like. I was sort of just like, it left me with more questions than answers because I was kind of like, what actually happened? You know, what's my prognosis going forward? Um, I think he, the guy did like a manipulation like on my, some uh, some part of my lower back and my neck. And afterwards, I was kind of, you know, it's just something you'd, I've never experienced before. You know, I'd never intentionally try and manipulate my body like that. So I, di- I wouldn't be going back. I wouldn't even refer someone to do that because I would be like so uncertain of it, you know? What narratives were you given to rationalize getting spinal manipulative therapy? Yeah, so I can't even remember what I was told, really, you know. It was more Mm -hmm. like, this is a complimentary service, and any sort of kind of pain that you have, I think, um, you know, let's just see, can we kind of work it out, I think. I I don't think there was, there wasn't a whole lot of, like, you know, the process. It wasn't fully explained, you know. That's not unheard of i'm not surprised by that but i'm assuming it was under the guise of like you had x pain and x body region and then we're going to do full spine manipulation because you need to be in alignment to get rid of this pain i think that's what it was kind of yeah it was kind of framed as like something was out of alignment and we're going to get you back i think that's yeah the word alignment definitely came up and um it was kind of getting like relief you know it's kind of like you have 
you've presented with this issue, this, this misalignment, we're going to realign you here and you're going to leave with less pain, basically. Mm. But this is, it was about two years ago. So, or, or a year, over a year ago. So, yeah. Bit what of a were your memory. thoughts about those narratives? You know, I have like my undergrad and postgrad done. So I'm kind of just like very skeptical, <laughs> you know, like what is the, pro- what's the mecha- mechanistically, what's going on here? Like why, you know, why would it work, you know? Um, yeah. And it was so new to me as well, you know, it's kind of like anything new that isn't, kind of well-established, I'm a little bit more skeptical of as well, you know, mm. coming from Ireland where we don't have it. Um, so yeah, just, I definitely wouldn't be going back. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, whatever it cost, I wouldn't have felt like it was worth the money that it would have been. Mm. Yeah. What's interesting to me, right. It's like spinal manipulative therapy isn't restricted to any particular healthcare title. So like physical therapist is capable of doing that. And osteopath is also capable of doing that. But if you talk to all of these different titles doing the same intervention, they'll give you different reasons for why it's needed to be done, right? Yeah. Which is really interesting to me because I'm like, how how is it possible that we could all be doing the same thing, but under the guise of supposedly a different narrative, even from a mechanistic standpoint? Um, so I think you're right to be skeptical. And I, I my usual advice to folks, if that's all your healthcare professional is doing, then we're I it would. I would struggle to say you should go back to that clinician. It would be similar to saying that, um, you know, if you if you're trying to address um, other health related factors, and you go see a physician, and they just say, "Well, we're just going to give you this medication," and you're like, "Well, are there other things I could be doing?" And it's like, "No, just take this." And but and that's not invalidating medication. There are absolutely scenarios and contexts that it should be a part of co-management for people. But to ignore the other healthy lifestyle behaviors that could also be addressed would be a disservice, in my opinion, meaning like what's physical activity look like, what's sleep look like, what's your social network look like, stuff like every healthcare professional should be going through in appropriate scenarios. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's something I've noticed as well where, um, you know, some of my coworkers will do stuff like massages, or like assisted stretching, or even a guy who owns a gym was recommended to me, you know, you want them to have a good session, you stretch them out. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not an advocate for stretching. Where's the evidence for stretching? You know, mm. having said that, then it's well, it's like, you're making me think that for my own, you know, work with clients that the educational sides, if you know, fundamental, I can't just put them through a workout blindly. And then they just keep coming back and relying on me. You know, it's like, I have to really incorporate an educational or I already do, but it's kind of just like, it can't be mm-hmm. kind of like a uh, client empowerment is really basically very important, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's difficult, right? Like the, the system that we find ourselves in operationally is one in which I'm giving you financial gain and you're doing something to me or giving me something. And usually education is greatly undervalued in most contexts. I would say certain fields uh, capitalize on education as a commodity quite well. Obviously, um, our school system, K through 12, and most especially higher education, which I work in, huge capitalistic endeavor, um, but also like other professions like lawyers do a very good job at you are paying me as a consultant for my legal knowledge to give to you. 
and they make it quite profitable. They usually charge an hourly rate. That doesn't tend to be the case in health and fitness and health care. It's, it's rare in which you could do a consultation, provide education and strategies for self-management, and there's a high value return on that financially. People in these contexts want to be told, what's the problem and how can you help me fix it or how can you fix it for me? And I think that bleeds into health and fitness as well. It's not, hey, you know, here's these physical activity guidelines that we have. Really, we just need to be making moves towards that. Here's how we could do that based on your lifestyle, your financial abilities, so on and so forth. And then this is something you needed to sustain towards, you know, from, in essence, all the way until the grave. That's not that. It's tell me the, you know, super special secret diet no one wants you to know about that I should be eating. Tell me these three trick exercises that'll get me shredded and ripped, but also hypertrophy at the same time. And, and it's like the, the things that are actually high value uh, information and variables in both of our fields are drastically undervalued on many fronts, but especially financially. And we elevate these things that are, we think are going to be quick fixes to these perceived outcomes we want to achieve. Yeah, it's like um, what uh, what works isn't sexy, and you know yeah. what's sexy doesn't work. Yeah, it's like something I'm trying to work on myself is to be like psychologically flexible because then I can continue to be like active or stick to my nutrition plan in a in a wide variety of situations. You know, so if I'm if I you know my I'm very exercise biased, um, so I think exercise is great. So it's like you know if I have a flexibility based mindset with my exercise plan. Like over the holidays, I've got exponentially more excuses not to be active and, sure. and fall off my plan. But if I'm flexible, I'll be able to navigate that and stay on the plan, basically. So, yeah, it's, and I'll I'll very rarely tell a client, "Hey, you need to be flexible with your nutrition." You need to be, you know. But it's kind of like, well, if they are, that's a really skilled kind of yeah. you know client who can really manage their health. Like, yeah, you know, because life is so dynamic. Um, and and it, it, it's, it would be a disservice to not bring this up, I think. Um, and, and it, this affects, you know, both of our realms. But in reality, only 24% of Americans meet U.S. physical activity guidelines. Only 6% of that actually meets resistance training focus physical activity guidelines. And when you look at, well, what's probably one of the main variables as a determinant of literally and figuratively making moves towards meeting physical activity guidelines is finances. That's that's what we see. You know, there that number will increase as the person's household income increases, um, and that we just saw that data from the CDC this year. Um, they have a very compelling chart in which, as you see the median household income go up, guess what? Physical activity guidelines being met also goes up. So I think, especially for the health and fitness and healthcare clinicians, like meeting people where they're at, like not everyone can afford a gym membership. Not everyone can afford a personal trainer. Not everyone can afford a registered dietitian, like we have to figure out from a community standpoint, how do we access the majority of the population? And the majority of the population is not meeting physical activity guidelines, not meeting dietary guidelines. And the reasons that typically I would kind of be biased towards are social determinants of health, that we have simply not afforded everyone equitable access to do both of those things. Yeah, wow, that's that's interesting. So as a family or is it is as a family or as a, a, an individual becomes wealthier, they, they have more access, which it is was, a, if I recall correctly, it's household income 
as household income increases to the above the federal poverty line, then meeting physical activity guidelines increases in percentage. And is that separate from or independent from like access to, you know, parks and walkways and, um, you know, different things like that that would affect your health outside of income? I don't believe that particular um, data looked at built environment, but there are larger. So I recently had a publication in American College of Sports Medicine's journal, uh, Medicine, Science and Sport and Exercise, that looked at physical activities relationship with chronic pain. And the the survey we used is the National Health Information Survey, which has been an ongoing since the 60s. It's the largest survey that uh, samples a general representative population sample of Americans, meaning it covers a wide variety of social economic status and race and gender and so on and so forth to really try to capture broadly, you know, external validity. What are some general claims we can make about the health of Americans based on this sample size. And some people complain, well, it's only, you know, around 30,000 people. I'm like, good luck surveying 30,000 people. That's a general population representative sample. Like, that's very hard to do. And they literally go into these people's homes for hours and go through about 500 pages of, of questions. And it's, uh, it's uh, one builds on the other. I'm totally blanking on the name or the word of that. Like you're taking a test, but each question will build on itself as you answer. And it samples all sorts of things like behavioral uh, issues, like are, is the person smoking, alcohol consumption, chronic pain, uh, medication utilization. I want to say there are questions in there regarding leisure time, physical activity and access and stuff like that. But it's such a large document and I haven't looked at it in a while. Uh, I don't want to say, but that's where I would look to see the relationship of the built environment the people actually meeting physical activity. Yeah. So you're making me think of um, when I speak to some people, I feel as though I'm very, very lucky in that I enjoy being active. You know, the benefits I get are like abundantly clear to me, but I'm, I'm sort of, and I guess a lot of fitness professionals are sort of uh, almost gifted the, the, the joy of exercise, I would say, because I feel like a lot of people, I don't know, is it the environment experience? Or maybe just genetically, they don't enjoy exercise. It's, what was your thoughts beyond that? Do you think that there's people in the population that just do not enjoy exercise and maybe health professionals mm. do actually, you know, for example, hormonally, the endorphins or something along those lines mean that they're predisposed to enjoy exercise and therefore their adherence is a lot higher as a result? Yeah, I'm going to stick with social determinants of health. You know, if you're a single mom with three kids, you're working two jobs, to just put food on the table and maintain a roof over your head, you're not really going to have time to worry about meeting physical activity guidelines, and you're certainly not going to have time worrying about dietary guidelines. I, I think we are often focused on the individual, like, why aren't you doing this thing that we know you should be doing? And it's very hard for us to zoom out and say, have we set up our environment and our society that the individual finds themselves in to ensure equitable access? and ability to do all of these things. And then it's going to start getting at, well, should we have a universal uh, a universal stipend for financial income at the federal level for all households? Because that's, you know, ultimately, if we're looking at this, when we see social economic status linked to a lot of health-related outcomes, at some point we have to say, how do we adequately address this versus traditionally in the United States, 
in a lot of situations, we put it on the individual. This is your problem to fix. This is your problem that you're below the poverty line. Just work harder, which is ridiculous, right? Like, you can't look at someone and say, what's well, your problem? You should just work harder. Oh, you're dealing with overweight and obesity. Just eat less. Oh, you just need to move more. For the longest time, ACSM's tagline and mantra was um, eat less, move more. And it's like, well, are you like thermodynamically correct? Sure. But you're missing the human being sitting in front of you. Have we done the things we need to do as a society to ensure that you have the ability to go do that? Do you feel safe in your neighborhood? Do you feel capable of going for a walk in your neighborhood? Do you have access to childcare to give you the autonomy and ability and time to be physically active? Do you have access? You know, we still have food deserts in the United States. Like, that's wild to me, given, you know, the amount of money we have as a country. There are regions that people don't have access to healthy foods. That's a problem. So, like, what are we doing to systemically ensure everyone has equitable access to this supposed healthy lifestyle? Yeah, you're throwing up so many questions. Um, there's actually a food desert here in San Francisco in, in the Tenderloin. It's like a, a sort of a lower socioeconomic area. And yeah, it's crazy. You go into the stores and it's just full of candy or added sugar foods or those hyper-processed foods. Um, so then, you know, somebody who comes in um, to work with you in, in, in the work that you specialize in, if they are not happy with their health, maybe they experience a bit of pain, um, they know they want to improve their health and get more benefits from exercise, but um, they kind of are facing all the challenges. Maybe they're, you know, from a lower socioeconomic background. Maybe they have children. They work a lot of hours and stuff. It's kind of like, for me, it's kind of like, is it, does it come down to kind of expectations and being like, you know, look, you're not going to be, you know, athlete professional level health. Um, you're maybe, you know, your best days are behind you, but now it's a case of like, just making the best of a tough situation and managing sort of expectations, but also your health given the challenges you face. So basically is it kind of like some people that just won't be able to make a huge improvement in their health, but they can kind of maybe slow the decline in their health or they can uh, maintain, you know, their health at 40 and just maintain that level of health as they age. Do, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a, so there's a couple of things there. The, the, the first thing I would start with is um, I probably wouldn't use a professional athlete as an example because a professional athlete is not after health. They're after a, a positive outcome, which is winning. And we're willing to sacrifice our health to get that outcome, right? We see that in professional sports all the time. So I wouldn't, I don't consider that like automatically a picture of health, which brings me to an ultimate question that we struggle to answer with. Well, can you define health for me? What does that, what does that mean to you? You're asking me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know the, 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 the new answer that's out there. That's like, you know, it's, it's a freedom of, uh, free being free of disease. Um, something along those lines um but it's also like uh kind of a, a freedom from like kind of psychological we'll say uh conditions also but mm -hmm. i'm struggling to come to an answer for sure um so i guess if i was to just come up with my own answer of what does health mean to me and it's kind of just like the, the easiest answer is to say that it's kind of like you're within the normal range for BMI or the next tier up, you know, the 29 to, to uh, the 25 to 29. Right. Um, and then it would be kind of, it would be based around some basic kind of uh, metabolic information. Like for example, your, your, your blood glucose and that kind of stuff, 
which is quite difficult for straight away. It's, there's a monetary sort of element to it. So like it would be metabolic. Um, it would be metabolic based. It would be uh, physical based in terms of how much activity you're doing on a weekly basis, which would probably be a mix of aerobic and, and resistance training. And then psychologically, that's probably the hardest one, but it's the most important. So I would say that it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, how do you define someone being healthy psychologically? And it's like very challenging. So I would just say maybe, you know, that's, you know, that's, yeah, that's a really, it's a really tough one to answer. So basically, I think I'm proving your point here that it's very hard to define what is healthy, but. Um, so you're, you're struggling with a question that many of us have struggled with and healthcare in general struggles with, and it ultimately gets at system level questions, because if we're going to say that we're making recommendations to make you healthy or disease free, like we need ability to identify modifiable risk factors and protective factors to these supposed outcomes. So I teach at Bridgewater College, I teach a, a class titled health and fitness assessment. So my task is to teach undergraduates how to assess health. Well, the first month of the class, we spend talking about how do we define health? How do we define disease? Because I think a lot of people just assume these are given, right? And then we go out into the world. It's just like we assume we know what pain is and how to define it and what it means. And so we go out into the world to affect this thing that we think we've objectified. And these are the things we're going to do to affect this supposed outcome. So what I try to get them to realize is like these are very intangibles, right? And so health has been defined for quite some time by the World Health Organization as, uh, in essence, to paraphrase it, a complete state of physical, mental, and social well-being, right? And so the question I pose to them, I'm like, think about, and most of them are 18 to 24. I'm like, think about your past 18 to 24 years, how much, however much of it you can remember. When were you ever, if at all, at a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being? And they're like, well, maybe once in two decades. And I'm like, right. Like, how do we achieve the unachievable? It's setting people up for false expectations. So then, we talk about other definitions. Hubert Adel came out with a definition that in essence boils down to your ability to adapt. And it's like, cool. So now we're back to blaming the individual. Like you're not healthy because you're just failing to thrive and adapt. Awesome. So then I take them. I'm a bit into philosophy. Most people would label me an, an activist, uh, taking an inactive approach to a lot of topics, which I do take an inactive approach to pain as well as the health. Frederick. Um, I'm not going to say the last name correctly, but it's the VS, I believe, wrote a paper about an inactive approach to health. And ultimately, it's does the human have the ability and autonomy to lead the life they want to lead? And in essence, that frees up the person, for the most part, to pursue life as they see it appropriate for them. And so then that will also beg the question, have we set up the environment and society in a manner that allows them to pursue their idea of health in life? And so that is um, much more of an individual question. So I will often ask people when they consult me to circle back to your original question, what does that mean to you? What does health mean to you? What are you trying to achieve? What is it? What is it? What is it you currently are doing that you feel like doesn't meet the standard and how do I help best facilitate that? The usual discussion is on the same side of the coin, we have disease, which also surprisingly is not easy to define. Uh, the field of nosology has been around for quite some time. At the turn of the 19th century, we had the kind of modern biomedical model emerge within the world. 
that, especially in the United States, that states that, in essence, any symptom, it can be compiled together with other symptoms to be a sign of the supposed label that we can provide. We call that diagnoses. We have ICD-10 uh, in the United States and throughout the world typically used to label these symptoms or signs pointing towards this diagnostic label. And so biomedicine takes the approach that we can isolate disease at an etiological standpoint and we can intervene and correct it. What you realize is, especially when you're in the philosophy side of things, is there are many different definitions of diseases and you have things like normativism, which means you have to have a group A comparison to group B and the group level defines what is normal, what is healthy. Um, so, but the issue with that is we often have the inappropriate comparison class. So if we were to say like, okay, the average American has a height of five foot nine, but you are of Japanese descent, let's say you're five foot seven, are you abnormal? Are you diseased? But if we took a normative approach, you're outside of the group norm. We've done this throughout history. We did this with homosexuality. We classified homosexuality as a disease based on normativism. We did the same thing with psychological-related issues throughout our history. We classified various mental health issues as disease states. And we do that from a pathological standpoint with pain all of the time. And so when people come to see me, that's the mindset is, I have pain or I have XYZ issue. It's indicative of a problem that I need you to solve and fix. It's very mechanistic-based, so to speak. And so we have to work through you know, what are people's basic understanding of these concepts of pain, of health? Where do they see me falling in this? And so I really try hard to reconceptualize these ideas of health, disease, and pain. This isn't to say, like, we don't have data to help guide this decision making. A lot of people will, will accuse me of ignoring biology and biological influences on these ideas of health. And that's not the case at all. It's creating more space and time for other avenues beyond just the biological silo. And so like you meant to mention mental health and well-being that will afford more space and time to address those more what people call soft issues versus let me just see what your basal metabolic you know, rate is or what is your cholesterol levels. Like, are those things important to an extent? Yes. But we have to remember the human is the one with the cholesterol. The human is the one with the pain-related issue. And so we have data to say, like, yeah, if your total cholesterol is above this number, we're increasing your risk for cardiovascular disease as an outcome, which is just an umbrella term for increasing your risk for things like myocardial infarctions or cerebral vascular accidents. Are there things that we can do to bring down that risk, to mitigate these negative outcomes we don't want to happen to you? Sure. Physical activity. Dietary guidelines, great steps to take. Maybe you have a genetic predisposition to have familial uh, hypercholesterolemia. You're probably going to need co-management with medication in addition to these other things. That'll still reduce your risk. Does it ever go to zero? No. The ultimate outcome all of us flee away from, but are in actuality fleeing towards, is death. It's, in, it's unavoidable. That is the end outcome for all human beings. So when we're constantly like, well, what can I do to minimize that from happening? And it's like, we really don't have a lot available to us. We have some really cool medicalized silver bullets like vaccines, antibiotics in certain situations, trauma situations we're pretty good at helping, but we don't have a lot of that, right? Then, you know, it's trying to figure out in a long-winded way, like, 
how do I help this person achieve their idea of whatever we're discussing? And what do we have data to actually support and me making those recommendations, which is why I don't do things like manipulative treatments or cupping and so on and so forth. So I feel that was a very like long-winded <laughs> response to your question. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. It actually answers the first question I was going to ask is what work do you specialize in? And I feel like you've just made a clear point about client empowerment and education and kind of like process as opposed to giving them a special treatment, which, you know, you can treat someone with uh, like, you know, the cupping or the spinal manipulation, but like really how, 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 how much does that affect long-term outcomes? And I would say just personally, I don't think it, it's going to be as effective as educating the client. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because just like when you're talking about modifiable risk factors for heart disease, if we're talking about modifiable uh, risk factors or protective factors, for pain, a there's there, there's not a whole lot. Pain's inevitable aspect of human living. That's just a fact of life. But the good news is, so are other things like love and happiness and joy. Like we have a the ability to feel a wide spectrum of ways. Right, pain just happens to be one of them. Um, and so, can we affect an outcome with various interventions like cupping, dry needling, spontaneous therapy, exercise? Yes. We can get a numerical reduction in a pain rating scale and a whole host of factors. My question is, what narrative do you have to supply as a clinician to the individual to do that intervention? What are you making them believe about pain, their body, themselves, and the world around them to validate your intervention? And if it's pseudoscientific, like bony misalignment, well, that really only happens in very like particular scenarios does someone have a bony misalignment you can have a full luxation which is a dislocation which you know you've luxated a joint and it needs to be relocated you could you could have a subluxation which is just a partial dislocation and then pops right back into place not the chiropractic narrative of subluxation which is these minute millimeter misalignments that only a chiropractor can find don't have data to support that and so and that typically occurs in very specific scenarios like um allostandalus uh syndrome eds in which you have hyper range of motion hypermobility um and you wouldn't be doing joint manipulations to correct that type of issue so it's just figuring out like if i'm making up narratives that i don't have data to support I'm likely over-medicalizing and pathologizing. I'm making up reasons to explain your pain and validating an intervention, which ultimately is profitable for me to do. Like, You're not going to get a huge return on education. And some professions don't even have access to a CPT code to actually do CPT codes, just the codes we input to insurance companies to get reimbursement for a particular ICD, ICD code. A lot of professions don't even have the ability to bill out for education, right? And so if I'm telling you, well, you have low back pain because you have muscle knots and you need me to release those for you, then we don't have data to support that. Do we have people subjectively reporting sore spots or pain in particular areas? Sure. Have we created objectifiable diagnostic criteria that's able to be repeated and replicated over time and is valid between clinicians and professional titles that then demonstrates, yes, this supposed issue exists 
not only does it exist, but it increases your risk for some negative outcome, let's just say pain in this context. And then not only does it exist, increase your risk for supposed outcome of pain, but we also have meaningful interventions that can directly intervene upon the ideology of that issue that has greater benefit than risk. Because a lot of people think intervention is just an upside, but there are risks to intervening on people, right? And so if the risk of intervening outweighs the potential benefits, then we don't do that intervention. And it's just like, well, this is what it is. You have to live with this. Those are the types of steps we should be going through as clinicians. Do we have the ability to identify X? Do we have able, are we able to repeat it, replicate it, and demonstrate that it's a valid diagnostic criteria? Does you having X increase your risk for some negative outcome? Do we have the ability with some treatment to intervene directly or indirectly on that variable to decrease your risk for that negative outcome or to treat the symptoms of that supposed issue and doing so that there are more benefits than risk? And typically, we skip all these steps. We, ju we just say someone reports pain. We can make up a diagnostic criteria for it, and people run off with it. It's very marketable, marketable to say this title has this ability to diagnose X, and only they have the intervention to address X. You know, that's that's very capitalistic approach. Yeah, it's very, like, black and white, and I feel like health is just like we we're trying to define, or I'm trying to define health. It's very gray. So. It makes me think, is getting a client to kind of conceptualize what their version of health would look like for them or trying to define what they're trying to work towards to get them to think about, okay, here, so I've decided I trust, you know, I, I trust Michael, I'm going to work with them. Is it important then to define like what would be a, a positive outcome or like a vision for their, their health? Absolutely. Or is, that, or is that even necessary? Could they just kind of, you know, blindly come to you and just you know show up and it, they would improve their health anyway without defining it you know yeah so i don't think health is like this static objectifiable you know variable for the most part like I, I think at best we can say mitigating the ways in which we die typically which is heart disease um is number one time and time again so it's like what what can we do that we know are modifiable risk factors towards these things that we just to hope don't happen to you or at minimal or less likely to happen to you. And so usually people come to me with a lot of priors like, hey, I've heard I should do Orange Theory Fitness. Hey, I heard I should do CrossFit. Hey, I heard I have to do barbell training, squat, bench press and deadlift or kink. Hey, I've heard I have to go do uh, F45, whatever the latest. And I'm like, look, A, do you like being active in groups or alone? Do you have the financial expendable income to join those various you know, organizations and gyms? Um, do you have your own equipment at home? What does physical activity mean and look like to you? What do you gain enjoyment from? Because here's the data that we have. I'm meeting this very squishy idea of health. Physical activity guidelines, 150 to 300 minutes per week of aerobic activity at moderate intensity. We have to talk about well, how do we gauge intensity. 75 to 150 minutes per week at vigorous intensity or a combination thereof. And two days a week of resistance training for all major muscle groups. From a physical activity activity standpoint, that's all we got. To say that we can meaningfully affect this squishy idea of health, which ultimately is just minimizing the likelihood of disease-related outcomes like heart attacks and strokes from inactivity. And it's to the point where it's not really that exercise is medicine, it's inactivity 
contributes to the development of disease states. And so that's what we kind of talk about. I'm like, if you've been doing nothing in the prior six weeks, so you've been inactive for years on end, hey, I'm not going to take you from that to immediately meeting this criteria. But B, we can meet that. It's purposefully vague in a wide variety of ways. So if you like CrossFit, if you like Orange Theory Fitness, if you think SBD is king, awesome. We'll start making programs and moves towards doing those things. But if your goal is just health, you have a wide variety of ways to meet that. If your goal is, I want to be strong, we have to talk about, well, what does that mean? Strength is task specific. Do you want to go compete at powerlifting or weightlifting or CrossFit? Is that just, I want to be strong enough to lift up a bag of dog food and walk it from my car to my house or pick up my grandkids? We have to define what that means to them. And then how do we program specifically to help them increase strength for those tasks? So those are the type of discussions we have is, is really, and it's the same thing when people see me for pain, is addressing prior narratives they've been given about this supposed outcome they're trying to affect. And what do we actually have data to say we need to do to achieve those outcomes? That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so it's making me think that I should definitely, you know, define health for a lot of my clients because, you know, I kind of have that a, a belief that exercise is medicine. But can you just talk a little bit more about how you so you said exercise is not necessarily medicine. Uh, inactivity increases like disease risk and the, and the chances of disease state. So. So is it is. A big, it's a bigger risk factor to be inactive than it is the, there's a bigger benefit to, to, to just kind of blindly being uh, active. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I think about it like a spectrum. And so because the majority of our population is inactive and we also have about 50% or more that fall into the classification based on BMI of overweight and obese, that that is where we usually think on the spectrum that folks just aren't active enough and that's contributing to the disease state. But that's not... That doesn't then mean we just need to increase activity ad infinitum because there are risks on the other end of the spectrum, like uh, uh, Red S, relative energy deficiency syndrome, which often falls in endurance athlete populations of being physically active to the point that you're developing underweight BMI status, low body fat percentage. You're having amenorrhea in female athletes. You're having a lack of morning erection in male athletes. Like These are symptoms that are signs of relative energy deficiency syndrome. So, and you can also have an increased contribution to having bone-related issues, bone stress injuries, so to speak. And so it's on a spectrum. I just need people to be physically, like, I am so happy just getting people physically active and moving more on a regular basis in ways that they find enjoyable that meet their goals for life. Because personally, and I know I'm going to narrow frame this, but when I look at social media these days, we're talking about... What's the sweet spot for ultimate hypertrophy? What's the exercise that's going to target this specific part of the hamstring of the hamstring groups? And I'm like, folks, we have only 24% of our population actually being physically active. That's not trying to minimize that. I think for a very small percentage, ultimate hypertrophy for my bodybuilders and figure competitors, that matters. But it's a very small subset, you know? And so it's like, I'm more focused on how do we get the rest of these people to be able to be afforded the opportunities to engage in what we consider to be healthy lifestyle behaviors and very much less focused on this minutia of what we seem to think is important in health and fitness on social media these days. Yeah, the minutia for sure. Like, um, 
there's such a big trend or bias or I don't know, just kind of overemphasis on fat loss in the fitness community. It's as though fat loss is king. Your body weight is all that matters. Having, you know, the bigger your muscles are, the better. And just like we kind of talked about earlier, it's like, well, your health is made up of like uh, your mental health as well, not just your physical or physiological health. So uh, do you see that a lot with your clients and kind of just what are your thoughts around, you know, that idea? Maybe I have it wrong, but that fat loss is overemphasized in the fitness community. Yeah, I think a lot of people talk to me about wanting to look a particular way. Um, and I do try to reframe, like, you know, also, how do you feel about yourself? How do you close fit? Do you like the way you look? Are you happy with yourself? I, I try to have a self-love kind of approach because I'm like, you know, what do we think is going to happen? Okay, you drop your body fat percentage low enough to have a six pack. Does the world of Nirvana open up and suddenly you're a millionaire and you have these fancy cars? Like, why are we doing what we're doing? Is it truly because that's what you want or is it because society tells you that's what you should want? Which is a whole other discussion on free will that we don't have to get into. But it's, yeah, I think that there's a major focus on, uh, for, for both sexes, uh, uh, men and women that you have to look a particular way. And you can even see it uh, on many different social media platforms. I have a student that actually wants to do, we're going to do a qualitative study on uh, TikTok, analyzing the perception of an advertisement of fat burners, uh, which gets out kind of what we're talking about. Like, why are fat burners sold? Under what narratives? What's the evidence? What's the ingredients? What are people's perceptions of these products being sold? It all started because we started talking about, she found a... Um, some tea on TikTok that was being sold as a fat burner tea. Like, oh, you got to do. And I was like, look, all, the reason it works is because you're in a fucking caloric deficit. Like, all you're doing is drinking tea. You went from eating 3,000 calories a day to having six glasses of tea. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm happy you don't die in a couple of weeks, but yeah, you're good. Right. And so it's just having these conversations about, you know, are these advantageous ways to go about weight loss? Do we need to do weight loss? What are we trying to accomplish? How does that feed into your idea of health? How you view yourself? What do you as the individual actually want to accomplish? And maybe you've built out these narratives based on what you've seen on social media told by others, and there's not a lot of evidence for them. And in fact, that could be quite harmful if you get on these paths unnecessarily. It's funny you mentioned that actually. Yeah, I have a, a good friend who might be listening to this, and uh, basically he was asking me about supplements and fat burners and i'm just like none of it works <laughs> yeah like there's no evidence to say that any fat burner works like uh you know reproducibly over the long term um and any change you could get with a fat burner you know you could get through you could save your money and get through um better habits or you could actually get a better benefit by focusing on other parts of your health outside of fat loss um so it just makes I me think, think sorry well, go ahead so it just makes me think of you know, again, coming back to like client kind of like education and empowerment. And it's kind of just like, you know, once you've been in the industry long enough, uh, you know, in my experience, it's it's quite easy to spot the real from the fake or what's, you know, a trend versus what's actually like a fundamental, you know, uh, health principle. And, you know, my, my friend would ask me a lot of questions and I would be able to just cut through them so easily, you know, like mo in general, most things uh, don't work. There's only a very few set of yeah. kind of fundamental principles that do work, right? So it's kind of like, is that something that you would work on, like with clients, you know, kind of constantly sort of reinforcing, 
I guess, the fundamentals of health? And, and if so, like, is there anything, what are kind of some of the, the main principles you try and pass on to your clients that you work with? Yeah, it, it's it's certainly related to health, which for me, in my context with pain, pain often falls under how does pain fit into this idea and concept of health and disease. So there's a lot of reinforcement. Um, I would just I would just add in the context of um, body composition and fat loss, there are some really good uh, physicians out there that specialize in uh, obesity related um, practice, and I think there are appropriate context uh, for people that they need medication management, they potentially would benefit from surgical intervention and management and accompaniment with these other healthy lifestyle behaviors. I I think there are a lot of, there is a lot of nuance that's not my specialty area related to the development and sustainment of obesity. Um, And I don't want folks to hear like, all you have to do is eat less and move more. I think there's way more external factors that are related and there's a time and a place and appropriateness for co-management from uh, those folks that can help people achieve their goals. I think that there's a misconception that even at a genetic standpoint, that all of us have equitable ability to achieve this supposed healthy outcome. And I don't think that's the case. Right. And I think especially in the health and fitness world, like, that's what we a lot of people sell under, right? It's like, oh, I look this way. Come work with me. You want to look this way too. You know, and, sorry to cut you off, but it just makes me think, right? We would never say, you know, Michael, you could be a professional athlete in X sport or, you know, we wouldn't ever look at people like that. But we always, yeah. we always look at ourselves and everyone else and say, you can lose fat. You can be of a healthy weight or, or at least subconsciously we believe that. And it's just like, we never would do that with something like an athlete. And there's so many sports out there. Surely someone could become a professional in any sport. And yeah, it's just kind of like, but for fat loss, we kind of have the same idea. Oh, you should be able to lose weight. Why can't I lose weight? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Just eat less, move more. And it's just like, because there's so much more at work than just eat less, move more. Exactly. So I think like having more space and time, building out connections, like referral connections, say, hey, I think, you know, this uh, obesity specialized physician could be very helpful in this scenario because your risk is certainly going to increase long term as we progress through class one, class two, class three obesity. We sustain that over time. But I think it would be very patient blaming to be like, well, this is your fault. You're not eating less or moving more. When we have very real, tangible, and from what I've been told by colleagues, low risk medication management and surgical procedures that could help this person along, you know, for, for me, the past two years has been a realization of like how impactful mental health can be on my quality of living. I've dealt with general anxiety disorder for most of my adult life. I've been very transparent, open on social media about it, but I had a sticking point for the longest time that medication management was a failure on my part for managing my anxiety. I should be able to do it through appropriate quantity, quality sleep, through physical activity, through mindfulness techniques. And a friend at the time said to me, he's like, why do you view medication as not self-management? And I was like, wow, that's a really good question. Why do I look at it like that? Well, the people that were around me looked at medication as like, I'm failing, right? Like I needed outside help. And it's like, no, this is just a part of your co-management so you can take care of yourself and elevate your quality. Why would you, why would you force it upon yourself not to utilize this? And that really reframed it on many levels. Like, I think if you would have talked to me 
I got into the health and fitness field in 2003, early on working for a gym and then progressed throughout time. Um, I would have been like, oh, you shouldn't have to do that. Like you should be able to. And it's like, wow, how naive of me, how narrow minded of me to think all of us have the same affordances and abilities to achieve these ideas. Yeah, that's a great point. And just something I want to come back to as well is like, you know, being lean and, and the effects of it. And you're talking about um, the red S syndrome and stuff like that. And it's just like, um, just when I think from my personal experience, when I was at my leanest, it's like my life is miserable, you know? So it's yeah. like, so you don't want to be lean. You literally don't, your body doesn't want to be lean. Your social life, you don't want to be lean for your, you know, any any aspect of your life. If your body fat is like, as low as it could possibly be. And I mean, like, if, if you look as lean as you possibly can and you think that's the gold standard for health, it's actually the opposite. When, yeah. Once you fully experience it. So you don't want to be uh, that lean. I would, I would just kind of, you know, put that out to the people who yeah. overemphasize well, we, the benefit of it. We have essential fat recommendations of 3 to 5% for men and 8 to 12 for women. And like you drop below those numbers, like essential fat isn't necessary, right? Like, insulates our organs helps with thermoregulation we utilize it for energy production like there's a reason we have adipose tissue <laughs> so um you know i could be doing a bodybuilding i uh, did the, uh, a show and uh the last time i did it was 2012 in an npc show and it's like yeah you're at you know what i would label as your unhealthiest yeah, i'm completely dehydrated i'm at the lowest body fat percentage i've ever been at i feel fucking horrible and and so it's like well, why are you doing this? Well, if it, if it's a goal that is important to you and you want to achieve it, I'm happy to facilitate it. But that's not that doesn't. I would it would be difficult to agree that that's the picture of what we perceive in our society as healthy living and achieving these positive outcomes of health. Yeah, absolutely. Like I wasn't that lean. I when I got my body fat tested, it was like nine percent when I did a DEXA scan. So that's not bodybuilding lean. And even then, my life. It's funny because at the time I didn't realize I thought, oh, I'm lean, the sense of achievement, external validation. But it's like I had no uh, social life. I had no my relationship with food was terrible. Energy, you know, couldn't really do much, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, leanness is just way overrated. Um, And then just, yeah, touching on like the mental health side of things as well. It's like I have a family member who uses uh, medication for mental health. and you know has has seen a very good benefit so it's kind of like you know i almost think health is kind of kind of like a hierarchy we'll say and your mental health is the foundation to it and exercise is sort of like you know it's essential but it's like not um the foundation you know or it's it's it, it kind of supplements the the psychology yeah. psychology of, of uh your health so that's that taking that broad you know thousand foot view of your health yeah, I don't think it's a panacea. You know, I think I think it can help us move towards these these concepts and ideas of health and mitigate some negative outcomes we don't want to see happen to people, like heart disease and stroke and heart attack. But um, I think there are many other things that are going to be needed in people's you know pursuits of their their idea of health. From my perspective, pain related, because people are like, "Oh, you just educate and exercise," and I'm like, I actually don't even advocate for exercise. I advocate for physical activity. Because a lot of people shy away from this idea of exercise. I'm like, but um, I don't make any claims towards physical activity correcting something that's wrong with you. Like there, I'm, I'm currently doing, I'm almost at saturation, a qualitative study on what are clinicians' beliefs about people who consult with them for their low back pain. 
And it's a lot of patient blaming, like a depressing amount of patient blaming. Like you're not active enough. You're too active. Your muscles are too tight. Your muscles are too loose. You're not strong enough. All you do is strength train. You're not flexible. I'm like, holy shit. Like, why has it become like you're in pain because you're doing X wrong? It's all your fault. Like, how do we reframe this from you're the problem and I'm here to fix you, which is a whole nother conversation. But we actually don't have data to say like you have to just like with health. We have no data to say you have to do a particular mode of activity. Um, you can, you know, what my most recent publication showed is it's probably a good idea to make moves towards meeting physical activity guidelines to mitigate the risk of chronic pain development, um, or to add as an accompaniment to helping folks dealing with chronic pain. Like that's the extent we can say is just trying to pursue physical activity guidelines, which is probably a good thing because then it gives that individual autonomy of frequency, volume, intensity, mode for things that they enjoy doing, but will also get the added benefit of, of pain relief. Wow. So even though you exercise regularly yourself, you wouldn't advocate for clients, I guess, what would your recommendations be for exercise? Because I would be like of the opinion, I guess I'm so biased though, right? That I already said already, I get such a benefit out of exercise, but that's yeah. individual to me. So yeah. I should be very careful about how my language with clients. So yeah, what do you, yeah, what do you recommend to clients in terms of you know, especially with pain, like the the, the tough situation of I have low back pain or I have pain in this area. My thing would be like, I'm almost of the belief that exercise is like analgesic, but it's you know that's a that's a huge claim to make. That's pretty wild. So yeah, what yeah. what do you recommend? Exercise could also increase someone's pain. Like it's a, it's a spectrum for sure. Um, so the statements that I make. And so like it, for those who go and pull this recent publication, it's just the relationship of physical activity and pain in United States adults. It's in ACSM's journal. Um, we were very purposeful in our language and, and we, we say physical activity, not exercise throughout the paper. Exercise is plan regimented goal oriented based programming and training. Physical activity is any bodily movement that's accomplishing a task, which could be activities of daily living, could be extracurricular or leisure activities. It's any bodily movement that would, demands would energy. Would come into that? So non-exercise activity? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It would fall under the umbrella of physical activity. Yeah. And so we say, I mean, this is why they're called the physical activity guidelines, not the exercise guidelines. It's because we just need people being physically active. Like our bar is so low. We just need to get people moving. We don't need them actually exercising. Great. You want to be, you want to be regimented. You want to have a very specific goal for your physical activity. We call that exercise. I'm totally happy to help you do that, but we actually don't need that. And it helps minimize these ideas of like, Oh, well, I have low back pain. And Stuart McGill says I need to do bird dog, dead bug and planks in order to correct my low back pain for XYZ reason. Like we have no data to say that or support that. We can say confidently that physical activity for many people feels better, but you can move in a wide variety of ways that you find pleasurable and enjoyable and meet your goals. It doesn't have to be these magical big three exercises. Brilliant. Yeah, that kind of actually makes me feel like or reminds me of a point. I feel, that, you know, the more I'm the longer I'm in the fitness industry as a health professional, the more I'm like a gatekeeper for exercise. And what I mean is people have these like notions of I have to 
or physical activity. I'm a gatekeeper for physical activity. So people are like, you know, I want to get healthier. I have to exercise in a certain way. You're going to show me how to exercise. And I'm really just going to keep you accountable, really, you know? So my sessions with clients have gotten a lot more like broad, open, conversational, where it's just like, I'm just going to make sure you do something. And whatever yeah. you want to do is what is what you're you're going to do. And that's going to get you a benefit, you know, because you're you're currently, you know, the, the 24% of people meeting the activity guidelines. So it's kind of like, I'm just going to get you closer to those guidelines. So do, do you ever kind of feel like that where you're kind of giving permission to to clients to just move? Because yeah, the modern lifestyle, you know, it's quite inactive. Especially in pain-related scenarios. Um, so when, when someone experiences pain, it's, it's oftentimes um, asking the question of, is this normal? Should I be experiencing this? Do I need to avoid movement and activity? Because pain is often associated with some specific task or some movement. And unfortunately, a large percentage of clinicians approach pain under what we call a kinesiopathological model. KPM, which is just a fancy way of saying you moved correctly or incorrectly and you got the outcome of pain. Don't really have data to support that. We don't have the ability to say if you move a particular way, you're at increased risk for the outcome of pain. And if you move a particular way, you're at a decreased risk. It's protective of the outcome of pain. We don't have that data. But if I approach your pain scenario as you moved incorrectly, you sat incorrectly, you walked incorrectly, you lifted incorrectly, then I create this one way of doing things perfectly. And as we know, with any dynamical system, building robustness and resiliency is done so through variety. So why would I constrain you down to one perfect way of doing things? I actually make the system weaker. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's how a lot of clinicians approach pain and movement. And then we don't have the support of the data to do that. So it's very much giving people permission to move and live their life and try not to focus so much on their symptoms unnecessarily, which can lead to fear avoidance behavior. We call that kinesiophobia. And that just means you're fearful of movement for anticipatory anxiety for the outcome of pain. So you stop doing things that you'd value and deem important for the fear of the outcome of pain or from the fear of increasing your pain. And we know that this is one of the major contributors to the development and sustainment and reoccurrence of chronic pain. And chronic pain is just simply defined on a temporal basis. It's pain that's lasting longer uh, than three months. And so that, and that's it. That's the only criteria. It's a temporal based criteria and it's an arbitrary temporal based criteria, right? Um, and so it, if that happens though, we see the persistence and reoccurrence of pain oftentimes because of the narrative someone's been given that they believe about their body and pain in themselves and how they engage the world around them. Um, so we have to go through this process of just like I asked you, what do you think health is? It's, well, what do you think this pain is? What do you think pain means? How is the pain affecting your daily living? And I hear things like, well, so-and-so told me I should stop doing X. And so-and-so told me I was doing X incorrectly. And that's why I'm getting pain. And they start constraining their ability to live their life accordingly way down. Well, as humans, we are our beliefs and behaviors. If I take away the behaviors that define your identity and who you are, yeah, you're probably going to become depressed. You're probably going to become anxious. You're going to feel less like yourself. You're going to have your identity stolen from you. And so part of my job, uh, it's coming in and opening up affordances, which is just kind of highlighting things in people's daily living to say like, hey, it's okay to have some symptoms. It doesn't mean X, Y, or Z. 
it's okay to re-engage these activities that you value in your life because it's part of your life and what makes you you. And we have no data to say you shouldn't do X, Y, or Z. And so that going through that process really helps someone reconceptualize pain, the meaning thereof, how they view their own body, how they view their environment around them. And as they re-engage the things that they value and want to do, they find that their focus of attention is no longer on their body as much. The body should be this transparent vessel that lets me engage my world accordingly. But when we're experiencing pain or what we may label as disease, the body takes the foreground and it kind of uh, obfuscates your ability to focus your attention on anything else. And we have to kind of work through this process to get your body to fade back into the background and your attention is just on engaging your world. It's almost like learning a new task, right? Like if you think about learning to ride a bike or learning to bench press or learning to squat, learning any motor task, you're super focused on the minutia. And you're even more so if you have a coach that's like, make sure your back's doing this, make sure your knees aren't doing this, make sure your head's in neutral, make sure you're doing that. You're like, fuck, I'm focused on every single joint I possibly have versus being able to focus your attention just on task completion and not worried about all of these minute details. That makes you feel more confident in yourself, more capable, and eventually more like yourself. The difficult part of this is you don't change beliefs in a single conversation. It, it's a process. Yeah, absolutely. You're making me think of uh, public speaking. That's like my, you know, a challenge for me. And I try to remind myself to focus externally because when I focus on myself and I'm speaking publicly, that just messes up my me trying to do the act, the completion, like you said. Um, yeah. And that's, I guess, where I enjoy exercise so much because I get out of, I almost get out of my head and into my body or something like that, if that makes any sense. And yeah, I can really just be present. Um, so something you mentioned is that, you know, people's narratives and that maybe they kind of, I kind of feel like you were saying it, but you didn't directly say it. Is that like people, okay, this is my opinion, that people have this sense that they're weaker than what they actually are and that they can't be as active as they would like or that pain is so real you know, whatever pain they may feel, for example, low back pain, that they can't be them true, their true selves or live the life they want to live. Yeah. Do you, would you agree with that? And where do you think like this kind of the, the kinesio, kinesophobia, the word you use, where do you think that comes from? Because I feel like it's very pervasive. People are, is it the modern lifestyle? Like what's the a source for this sort of avoidance of being active? Yeah, so I think in the context of pain, a lot of it hinges on how we approach pain in our society. Um, and so we very much approach it in a biomedical manner. We think pain, uh, pain is a sign of damage, hurt, harm, avoid, and problem to be solved by a clinician. So we go to our healthcare professional. The unfortunate scenario is our healthcare professionals are trained at very well trained at specific scenarios, infectious diseases, communicable diseases, very well trained at traumas, stuff like that. Um, not so much on pain. You know, pain is the number one reason someone seeks healthcare in our country. And the majority of our graduate level healthcare programs do not have a single class on pain. It is this assumed given that's a sign of a problem that needs to be fixed by the clinician. And if you were to pin down healthcare professionals like, hey, what do you think pain means? Can you define pain for me? They would really struggle to do that. And it's like, well, why does it matter? Well, it matters because how you define this phenomenon influences your thought process and management strategies. So if you think pain means X, then your recommendations are going to be built off of that foundation. And whether you've stopped to ask yourself, what is your philosophy of pain? 
it's there. It's influencing your decisions and it's affecting it. So I try to encourage clinicians like, hey, a lot of, you know, where my research tends to focus these days is what is the clinician's role in the development and sustainment of chronic pain? And I am seeing in, in one of my biases, we play a pretty important role and, and not in a good way. It could be in a good way. I'm hoping I can help with the other team members I work with get clinicians to realize like your role could be pivotal in a very positive way. But my bias is right now, it's not in a positive way. We supply a lot of false misinformation about explaining pain to people. And then the narratives we give them for management strategies are not well-founded. And it leads to people having misbeliefs about their body and pain and what it means for how do they engage their world again. And that's how we get kinesiophobia and fear of avoidance behavior. My bias is, it's a major clinical related issue, but it is also, if I zoom out, a societal overhaul of what we as a society think about pain. Yeah, you're making me think of the the Hippocratic Oath of, you know, do no harm. That's the first thing. And it's kind of just like you said about, you know, choosing your words wisely. And it's it's so important. Um, yeah, we well, we have the nocebo effect. Have you heard of the nocebo effect? So I know of a, a placebo effect. Correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, you're using... You're, you're doing, you're engaging in an activity or taking like some sort of like medication and believing that it works and then bringing about a positive outcome. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we we're starting to slowly shift our language and this is a pretty highly debated topic in the world of healthcare, but I tend to say placebo like contextual effects. So we can get a positive outcome for a whole host of reasons that has very little to do, if anything to do with the intervention. And a lot of it's related to therapeutic alliance. Like, do you trust me? Do we get along pretty well? Um, do I have positive reviews online for my clinic or myself? Um, it could be um, we trust one another. I confirm to your priors as far as like what other clinicians have told you is wrong with you. And I have the intervention to fix you and you buy into that. Uh, people can get better for a whole, whole, whole host of reasons. I often talk about it about um, Beverly Hillbillies, the grandma on the show developed her elixir for the common cold and she was going around selling it to people and some doctors were like you know what what are your recommendations she's like well get plenty of sleep drink lots of fluids take this elixir three times a day in about seven to ten days you'll feel right as rain and it's like well no shit the common cold resolves itself through natural history in about seven to ten days and natural history for those listening is just if we do nothing what is the trajectory of the supposed issue and we see that a lot in uh, chronic pain scenarios. So there is a natural history for a lot of people. There's also not a natural history for a lot of people. And I think that we're ruining natural history through the nocebo effect. And nocebo effect, if placebo means I shall please, meaning we get a positive outcome related to placebo-like contextual effects, nocebo means I shall harm. And I think our narratives, our words, our explanations, our validation for particular uh, interventions we tend to see just upside positive benefits, but in actuality, I think the risks are, are outweighing that. Yeah, it's it's got to be, I think, individualized, you know, any kind of treatment or activity we engage in, uh, which makes me think of like trying to have a philosophy, like I think you kind of said it where philosophy for pain or philosophy for health or definition of pain or definition of health, be clear on those things and know how it can be affected positively or negatively. Um, so uh, Michael, I've taken enough of your time. Thanks very much. This has been like a really interesting discussion. Is there any kind of final message you want to uh, pass on or any links or anything that you want to mention? 
Um, yeah, if anyone's looking to work with us, just tame, T-A-M-E, pain.com. That's our website. You can find all of our social media links there. Um, and then I would just, you know, caution people, be careful who you look at as trusted sources of information. We should question narratives and the evidence that is utilized to validate those narratives, regardless of title. Yeah, definitely uh, apply some critical thinking and don't take things at face value. Think about uh, the source information. Thanks very much, Michael. Um, this it is that time of year again where Thank a lot you. of people look to make health improvements, health changes, or they're just trying to get out of the hole that was the Christmas and holiday period. If you are looking to improve your health in 2023, book in your free consultation via the link below attached to this podcast episode. We will discuss your current health challenges, what you're trying to work on, and how I can help you improve your health in 2023. So if you're serious about improving your health, book in your free consultation today and let's get started working.